Could you open up to Psalm 62? The title for this message is The Necessity of Being Alone. Yes, I picked that because Ken and Derek and Jared left me. But really, more than that, this is, this is a message you rarely hear, and I think it is wise to um, venture out of the full spectrum of teaching. We hear the gospel often. We hear the joy of the Lord often. We often hear that God loves us. But rarely do we talk about the essence and necessity that we need to be alone sometimes to meet God. And that's what this is all about. I will read it and then um, we'll work through it. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balance, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. That's the psalm. And the whole point of the psalm is that, did you know it is good? It is a good thing to be alone. I was contemplating, should I title this, the joy of being alone, and the more I thought about it, is when you say joy, what comes to your mind is happiness, pleasant feelings. Being alone isn't necessarily pleasant, but it is necessary if you want to grow in maturity with God. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 326, the writer said, It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let the man sit alone in silence for the Lord will not cast him off forever. This scripture, specifically Psalm 62, today is going to argue that if you are ever going to experience God in any deep way, like a real walk with God, you have to understand the necessity of being alone. Look how he begins. He begins in verse 1, For God alone, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. Being alone and waiting silently for God. That's what this writer is pleading us to do. King David wrote this psalm. And he wrote this psalm at the twilight of his life when he was a mature man. 
And as a mature man who's been through trials untold, King David knew that it's only God that rescues. And the only way to understand that is there are times you have got to get silent and alone with him. When you're alone, everything's stripped away and you are forced to med meditate on things that matter. In fact, I, I, this is a hard message because we don't understand that. CNN once uh, reported two weeks ago that the average hours per day that teens spend in media is 9 to 12 per day. Another report said in half of the American homes, the television is on all day long. As if uh, noise filler or news is flashing all day long. Some people wake up, turn on the TV, and right before they go to bed, they turn it off as if that TV is their friend. It's a necessity. People must have full calendars. If you don't have all your weekends scheduled, there must be something wrong with you. Who ever heard of having nothing to do on a Saturday anymore? I remember 30 years ago, Saturdays were meant for having nothing to do. Now, if you don't have them filled up, you're a loser is how you feel. Like, man, I've got nothing to do. Everybody's busy. We've got to do something. It's hard to be alone because we're busy, busy people. We aren't comfortable with silence. We need noise. In my mind, noise and busyness is a thief. It creates shallow souls that only relate with God from a distance. What I find interesting is sometimes we are so noisy of a people that we need people up on stage to help us connect with God. The louder they are, the better at performing, the more I feel like I'm in touch with God. But if they don't do a good job, we feel like, man, I, I, I just I don't meet with them. I'm going to argue that when you are alone, when the noise is shut off, that is when God will begin to speak to you. That's when you're going to gain maturity in your walk. The context of Psalm 62 is quite fascinating, actually. It's, um, King David wrote this when he's in the wilderness. Actually, David, David lived in the wilderness. For many years, he lived in the wilderness. When we went to Israel, we were able to see the wilderness. The Judean desert is dry, rocky, dusty, hot. The, uh, the tour guide told us that maybe five to six days a year they get rainfall. The rest of the year... It's just desolate. David lived in this. He lived when he was being hunted by Saul. He lived as a shepherd in Bethlehem. And the context directly of Psalm 62, he's writing from the desert wilderness. But that's not the problem. Here's the problem. Right before David went to the wilderness, his son betrayed him. I don't know if you knew this, but David was a terrible father, King David. He had one son named Absalom. If you know anything about Absalom, Absalom was, the way they describe him, they say he's one of the most good-looking men ever. He had this really long, black, flowing hair. I guess that was a big thing back in the day. But he, he, was, he was a gorgeous man, is how the scriptures write about him. Absalom wanted his dad's throne. And it says he would go outside the city gates, 
before people got into the city to go to the throne to talk to David, Absalom would talk to people and make negotiations with them outside the city gates. It says in 2 Samuel, and you can read this in 2 Samuel 15 to 17, it says that he stole the hearts of the people from David. He wanted his dad's throne. After four years, he started raising an army. He started gathering horses. And one day, he, he went riding into Jerusalem to take the throne by force. David heard about it. And it says in 2 Samuel 15, he escaped in his bare feet walking across the Mount of Olives with people following after him, just weeping. Because David knew his son was going to kill him. Not only did his son win his throne, but his top advisor, Ahithophel, that's a hard name to say, Ahithophel, you need to sneeze when you say that name, Ahithophel, his top advisor, left David and went with Absalom. Then there's another strange name man, Mephibosheth, have you ever heard of that guy? He was a cripple. Mephibosheth was a crippled son of Saul, and David felt bad for him. So David would often have Mephibosheth, I can't even say his name, to dinner. He left he left David to go with, with Absalom. And then Absalom had this other guy named Shimei. Shimei chased David out of Jerusalem and started throwing rocks at him and said, you are a man of blood and God is cursing you. One of David's generals said, you know what, David, can I just go chop that guy's head off? And David said, no. God's probably sent him as a prophecy to me. So you have his son, be, uh, his son betrayed him, his top advisor betrayed him, a friend betrayed him, and this weird Shimei guy was throwing stones at him. That's not the worst thing. It gets worse. David, they had a weird culture back in the day. David had concubines. And Absalom took David's concubines on top of the palace and slept with them in front of all Israel to humiliate his dad. That's sickening, really. Humiliating. And in the final straw was David's men wanted to bring out the Ark of the Covenant, which is the visible, tangible sign of God's commandments, his presence. And David said, no, put the Ark back. And here's the reason why. He said, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if God is done with me. So I'm going to go out into the wilderness, and he actually says this in 2 Samuel 15. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it, that's the Ark of the Covenant, and his dwelling place. And he says, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you. So needless to say, this was bad for David. It was dark. His, he lost his throne. He lost his son. He lost his kingdom. He lost the trust of his closest men. He lost the article of furniture that represented the presence of God, and his concubines were ravished in the sight of all people by his son. And now he has to go live in the dark caves of Judea. He was a man alone. But look at verse 2. He writes, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How could he say that? He's been greatly shaken everybody left him but he says you know what even though i have been shaken it's not great what he means by that is there's one person left on his side 
One person he can trust. One person that will rescue him. His rock. His Lord. That's why he's not completely thrown in the towel. That's why he's not greatly shaken. So this psalm is a powerful statement of faith by a man who lost everything, but yet still clung to God. How would you, how would you do under these circumstances? How would you do if everybody left you? If you were completely humiliated and you lost everything? I think some of us have had wilderness times like that. In fact, to me, God is going to bring you there if he really wants you to grow in him. It's a must. Being alone is a must. Being alone where you are completely devastated, I think, is the way God reaches us, believe it or not. In fact, David is going to perfectly explain what happens in the heart of a man in the darkness of his soul. Two things come sharply to mind. Things he used to trust in actually are shown to be worthless. You can read them in verses 3 and 4. Listen to what they say. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. It's, it's interesting, if you read it in context, he's saying, how long will you attack a man? His son attacked him. His counselor attacked him. They wanted to throw him from his high position. They blessed David behind his back at the city gate only to stab him in the back. But what he's saying here is, first of all, he's saying that, you know what? Everybody's going to let you down. All people, sooner or later, are going to let you down because we're all broken. David was attacked. He was lied to. He was manipulated by other people. Most of the people in our lives that we allow in our lives, we trust. We put them in our lives, we trust them. But the truth is, there will be times when even your most trusted friend, your spouse, even your parents and mentors will let you down. They will. Or the worst experience is when people turn on you. Have you ever had a friend you got in a disagreement with that won't even talk to you anymore? They won't even look at you? When that happens, you start entering this strange wilderness of soul. Have you ever posted something on the internet and three or four people you thought were your friends just slander you? You're like, man, what did I do? Have you ever been so let down by people that it seems like the whole human race is not to be trusted anymore? Have you ever had somebody that was your best friend or a really good friend and you just get in a disagreement with them, they won't even look at you anymore? It's weird, but people are broken. And because they're broken, they will let you down. They just will. When people let you down, instead of becoming a pessimist and having a pity party saying, everyone hates me, I can't trust anybody anymore, you need to become a Christian. A Christian is the person who, like David, understands that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things, and he uses all things to bring us to himself, even people that leave us. 
can be for the will of God. Psalm 31 says, Both of my neighbors and friends have left me. Job 19, 13-15. Those who know me are fully estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. Have you ever reached a point where no one seems to be on your side? You will. That is because people are broken. The second thing he realizes here is not only are people broken, but so am I. He writes this strange statement, verse 3. He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. Some uh, scholars are wondering, who is this leaning wall? Who is this tottering fence? Is it Absalom and his counselors, or is it David himself? I am convinced David is talking about himself. He's using a comparative metaphor. All through Psalm 62, he says, God is a rock, a rock. If you go to the Judean wilderness, I mean, the rocks are huge. They're immovable. You can't move them. But David's saying, as compared to the rock, I'm like a tottering fence. Have you ever, as a kid, tried to hop a fence, one of those fences that are made out of wood split rail ties, and you go to hop it, and you step on it, and the whole thing crashes underneath because it's just rotted out? That's what he's talking about. That's what he says I am like. I am a tottering fence broken, weak fence. Many of you have been raised to believe you can do anything, especially if you put your mind to it. You're an American. Dream and fulfill those dreams. Or you get into situations that are completely out of your control. People turn on you. You fail. And then you start saying, man, I'm not who I thought I was. Some of you get so depressed because you were thought we're so strong, and all of a sudden, I can't do anything. This is a hard moment. When you real, really come to grips that you are not who you thought you were. Some of us have been so flattered by our parents. Some of us have never had to struggle that when we finally have to overcome something and it's bigger than us, we realize we aren't able because we are made of dust and ashes. We are a tottering fence. Take these two ideas together. I want you to get this illustration in your mind. And here's what I think God is saying to David and he wants to say to all of us. And the illustration I want to use is, do you remember when you were a little kid or if you had little kids and you, you started to ride a bike for the first time? If you think about your first bike, mine was... A light blue Schwinn had kind of like those cool, um, oh, the long forks in the front, and it had a big banana seat, and it was cool. I mean, it was a cool bike. But when I first got it, my dad put training wheels on it, those two little dinky wheels in the back. Training wheels serve a purpose. So the first time I get on the bike, it doesn't just fall over. So I can ride it a little bit and feel some stability and get some confidence. But after a while, hopefully it's the same day, if you're a tough guy. Hopefully it's the same day you'll take those stupid things off because you can't really ride. Have you ever tried to take a quick turn with train, training wheels? Boom, you like tumble. It's worse than if you didn't have them on in the first place. Have you ever seen those kids that keep those training wheels on forever? 
and they can only do long circles. Like that's stupid. And it's ground down to a little, like it's ground down to the metal. It's like take those things off. No, I'll fall over. You know that. Take those off. In spiritual, in spiritual truth, we are to ride the bike that's called faith. Faith is complete trust in God. Well, when we're young in our faith, a lot of times God will bring training wheels. He'll give us teachers, mentors, pastors, friends to help us learn about Scripture, about how to walk with God, how to grow in Christ. Those are good things. When we first come to Christ, often the things that really grab our heart are teachings like, God loves you. God designed you with meaning and purpose. You are, you, are going, you are seated at the right hand of God. So you start thinking, wow, I'm something. And that's another training wheel. But in order to get you to ride by faith alone, he's got to take these training wheels off. And he usually does this in the darkness of the soul, in the wilderness. And he usually reveals to you that people are broken. And so are you. That yes, God loves you, but he doesn't love you because you're incredible. He loves you because he made you in his image and he has incredible things for you. It's a big difference. It's funny. When God wakes you up, it's hard. It's difficult. The scriptures call this moment being contrite when your heart is broken. We have a song that says, sweetly broken, wholly surrendered. The scriptures talk all about it. David says, you know what? God doesn't, Psalm 51, 17, he doesn't want sacrifices. He doesn't want religion. He doesn't want you to be a good person. He wants you to be broken, a broken heart. In the Old Testament, Job, Job is one of the godliest men. Job was having a terrible time Job was kind of getting angry at God, and God showed up and said, all right, Job, I'm going to ask you some questions. He showed himself to Job. Job finally saw God for who he is, and he said, man, I am nothing. It says in the, the ESV, it says, I am of small account, meaning I am a broken man. Isaiah, Isaiah was an amazing prophet. God is, shows up in his temple to Isaiah says, I want you, Isaiah, to go. I want to send you to people. And he says, I can't. I am a man of unclean lips as I look at you, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my heart has seen the king, and what he's saying, when I finally see God, I realize not only is my training wheel myself, am I a broken, unclean man, so are the people I live around. They're people of unclean lips. The New Testament Contriteness is this phrase. It's really understanding that I am crucified with Christ. I am dead. I died. I died. That's hard to understand. But when, you, when God wants you really close to him, he, realize, he makes you realize you're dead. That's contriteness. 
To get to this place, God has to get you alone. I remember in my life, when God got me alone, it was hard. I grew up in a home where my dad, when you, when you have a scale of introvert and extrovert, my dad on the scale of introvert and extrovert, he was, he was literally mathematically 110% an extrovert. And I know you say that's an impossible mathematical truth, but he was. My dad loved people. When people came over, he'd go, hey, how you doing? My dad would wake up in the morning. You guys probably heard this story. He'd say, Chris, how you doing? Why don't you say, boy, am I enthusiastic? Like, Dad, no, I don't want to do that. Like, he's just too much. It's too much. But I learned to be, I, I learned to be an extrovert. And so when I would go to school, I, I would go to, I was a captain of the football team. Guys would call me to arrange parties, and I could tell stories. And then there was a time when God took me and he said, Chris, I'm sick of you being like that. And he had me lose my friends, my job, and I was alone. And in that moment, I felt like I lost myself. When people let me down or I let myself down, I felt like nothing. Man, I said, am I now an introvert? Am I, am I even important to anybody? Does my life even matter? But what God was doing, now that I look back, God was isolating me and taking off my training wheels, so he was the only person I had left. Listen to what David writes. He writes in verses 5 and 6, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. I want you to notice something in verse 6 from verse 2. Verse 2, he says, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. He says, I shall not be greatly shaken. In verse 6, after he's been contemplating on the brokenness of man and himself, he realizes God's all he has left. And then he says, he doesn't question it anymore. He says, instead of saying greatly be shaken, he just says, I shall not be shaken. His confidence has actually grown in God. Why? Because he realizes there's no one else but God. There really isn't. And then he trusts God for the two most important things in his life. Look at verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory. On God rests my salvation and my glory. Martin Luther calls this naked trust. What naked trust is, is when everything that you used to hang on to and lean on and trust in and have hope in loses, you just no longer do, and all you have left is God as your fortress. He calls that naked trust because you have nothing else. You're unclothed before him. And he says in naked trust, you trust God for being rescued. He's the one that will save me and deliver me in any trial. Normally we wait for rescue from others. When things go wrong, we are quick to place blame on people for not being there for us. They let me down again. Much of our anger is from having these unfulfilled expectations of wanting other people to rescue me. But God takes David in the wilderness and he shows him that people will always let you down. Look at verse 9. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Meaning the poor people, their life isn't that long. Those of high estate, you know, rich people, 
They're a delusion. They think they're something. Because I got riches, man, I'm going to live a long time. He says, that's called a delusion. They're lying to themselves. They too are a breath. And the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Meaning they really, people, are so weak and transient. They're but a breath, a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. And I'll tell you, much of our anger comes from trusting in vapors. And they let us down. Because they will let us down. It's funny, my sister Gina came in two weeks ago to speak to the ladies. And as I was driving her to the airport, I said, how'd it go? She said, well, I said, because my mom was with her. She said it went really good. She goes, but mom got a little mad because there's one part in our me my message I, I didn't necessarily talk too kind about dad. My mom said, oh, you don't have to share all of that. And Gina said, I have to because my dad's a real person. And I said to Gina, I said, that's funny because we really love and respect our dad. But I said, when I let go of my expectations of my dad, that's when I really finally started loving my dad. We get so mad at our parents for not being our heroes, for being people many of us can't let go of our bitterness. Man, my mom wasn't a, she wasn't a good enough mom. My dad, he was just a jerk. And we hold on to that all the time. And what, what David's saying is they're but a breath. Quit condemning people for letting you down. They're human beings. God is your refuge. He's your salvation. The moment you can let your, when I could start praying for my dad, because there was a moment when my dad's life was hard. He lost the job at 55, and it, he couldn't find another job for literally about nine months, and it was dark. And I'd go upstairs to my room, and I would pray for my dad. And when I'd pray for my dad, I saw my dad as my brother in need. And then not only did I see my dad as my brother in need, but I saw God as my dad. That's when God became my dad. That's when I finally realized he's the one that's perfect, not my parents. We just let it go, man. Seriously. Quit holding your parents accountable for being human beings. The second thing is this whole idea of glory. Look what he says. He goes, verse 7, God rests my salvation. And then he says, also in God rests my glory. Glory means my reputation. That means God alone is going to exalt me. We are on a constant, I would say daily pursuit, of trying to show people how great I am. We are always trying to be impressive. And what David's saying, you know what, I'm going to let God worry about making me impressive. He's the one that's going to glorify or exalt me. Look at what he says in verse 10. And to me, this is the, he's dealing with this issue of glory because I think the richer we are, the more important we think we are. And that's why he says, put no trust in extortion, meaning ill-gotten gain. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. It's not how rich or important you are. Let God establish how important you are. Proverbs 22.1 says, better a good name than riches. It's better to be esteemed than a accumulating silver or gold. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, 
a good name is better than precious ointment. And at that day, if you had a one jar of ointment, it would be worth two years' wages. And what, Dave, what uh, the writer Ecclesiastes is saying, you know what, a good name is better than being wealthy. It just is. Why? Because there's really one thing that matters. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 11. There's something about gaining a reputation and a name from God instead of relying on your wealth, your job, your position, or your bragging. Hebrews 11 tells us what really matters. This is one of these passages that the first time I read it, it didn't make sense. I have to be honest with you, because I'm an American, and this is not an American verse. And we live kind of, what I would say, in a... Christianity has sort of been poisoned by the health and prosperity gospel. Like it's, it's kind of poisoned even in the evangelical world, that if I, if I name it, or if, I'm, if God likes me, he'll bless me. You know, it's poisoned us. Listen to Hebrews 11 and just, this is incredible. Starting in verse 13, Hebrews 11 is the great wall of faith. All of these people who loved God, these great faithful people, in verse 13 said they all died in faith. They did not receive the things that God promised them. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So God gave them great promises, but they didn't receive them because they recognized this earth isn't where I'm going to ultimately be fulfilled. I'm a stranger here. That's what that means. Verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, which means that if these people really want more than just this world, if they wanted this world, they would... They'd have been happy, but they weren't happy. They wanted more. They wanted God. That's why verse 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And because they wanted God and his realm above all things, listen to how it reads. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Stop. Right there, that is what really matters. Here's what this is saying. You know what really matters? When everything's over, when your life is done, when all of your experiences are buried in the dust, is God, when you enter heaven, is he proud to say, I'm his God. He's mine. She's mine. That really is all that matters. That is why a good name is better than riches. So, let's go back to Psalm 62 and get close to the end of it here. Why does God get you alone? What does he want? Well, he wants to show you that he's all there is, but he also wants something else, and it's verse 8. Listen to verse 8. Verse 8 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. That's naked trust. He's the only one to trust. And then he says, pour out your heart before him. One writer says to pour out means, first of all, you need to have a tender and soft heart. One that lets all of your feelings, desires, emotions, wishes, sorrows of the soul 
to spill out of you like water from a glass before God. It's kind of like a drink offering. A drink offering, they would pour it before God on the altar. That's what he wants from your heart, a drink offering that just spills out. He wants you is really what this means. It's funny. When we pour out, we are expressing vulnerability. And God's heart responds first to vulnerable person, a needy person. It's funny. Jesus says, you know how you need to come before him? You've got to come before him like a little child. What does he mean by a little child? Does he mean without pride? No, a lot of children are proud. Does it mean greedy? No, children are greedy. Well, what is it about a child that's so compelling to Jesus? They are utterly dependent. Utterly. And they don't mind saying so. Hey, Dad, can you tie my shoes? Dad, I want, I want a lot of things, but can you help me with this? And I'm compelled to help because I love my kids. So is God. When you pour out your heart in dependency, he's compelled to rescue you. But to me, here's, if I can be honest, this is where my personal problem lies with this passage. This is a hard passage for a very personal reason. And I have a sneaky suspicion it's a problem with you too. And here's, here's what it is. How do you cry out to God when you are constantly occupied online? I am beginning more and more to think, and when I pray, I'm telling you, God is really starting to nudge me more and more in this. I'm beginning to think my sin, my pet sin, is surfing the internet. I'm not looking at anything bad. I'm just stuck looking all the time. Man, I go to an article about ISIS, I click a link to another ISIS article, which takes me to another link about an ISIS article, which talks about Hillary, and I click on that. You know, you click and click, and you're stuck. And in all of this clicking, I'm disconnected from crying out. I'm distracted. I think this is my sin. I began the sermon by saying being alone is necessary if we are going to mature in God. I wanted to say joy, which I said to you, but I can't because being alone is hard. But I'm more and more convinced the more and more you're alone, the more and more it does become joy. It's something that starts happening to you. I don't know how to explain it. I, I don't like being alone. I really don't. But the times that God pulled me aside and said he's the only one when I look back on it now those are the times when the word of God became alive to me alive I don't like seeing myself as a weak person and I I don't like feeling that everybody's against me but in those moments when I felt that way I realized God's all I got listen how he ends and I want you to really take note because how he ends is the essence of faith it says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. So what he's saying is he knows that power, strength, and love comes from God. And then he ends like this. For you will render to a man according to his work. Here's what he's saying, and this is the essence of faith. You need to never forget, never Never, ever, ginger under any circumstance. Never, ever, never 
under any circumstance. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> For any reason, never forget this one thing. And it's the very last verse. And to put it in my jargon, never ever forget. And this is the essence of faith, so don't forget it. For any reason. Ever. God sees everything. God sees everything. For you will render to a man according to his work. What that means is that when you are all alone and you think everybody's one, and everybody's cheating you, and everybody's lying about you, and everybody's scheming, and everybody's out to get you, and you've been faithful, and you've been righteous. This says God knows. He knows because he sees everything. Do you know, could you imagine being David where David said, God, my son stole my throne. He was lying for four years. You're going to let him get away with that? But, you know, David didn't necessarily say it like that because he already knew God. Do you know what happened quickly to his son Absalom? Remember how he said he's a good-looking guy with big, long hair? One time he's being chased. This was, must have been pretty quick after David was out of Jerusalem. He's being chased by some of David's men. And Absalom was on this mule. It must have been a pretty quick mule if you're going to be chased. It's on this mule. And it says Absalom's riding his mule under a big oak tree. That's how it's written. He's under a big oak tree, and his hair gets caught in the oak tree, stuck there. It says the mule keeps on riding, and it says that Absalom is stuck between heaven and earth. There he is, stuck in a tree with his big, long hair. See, vanity will get you. Don't forget. So he's stuck, and it says Joab, David's top general, came upon Absalom, and with a javelin, Stuck him in the chest three times. Tum, tum. And then it says he took him down out of the tree, drug him to a pit, threw him in a pit, and all of David's men heaped that pit with stones. God sees everything. He sees what you're going through. He sees when people have lied to you, when people have quit on you, when people tear you apart. He'll defend you. What he wants from you is trust. When you have naked trust, you will see God deliver. And God will protect your reputation. I have a funny job. I have a job where I, I learn a lot of things about people. And I have an a, 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 a expectation by everybody in congregation, it's good that I am a man of confidentiality. That's my job. I can't share anything. But a lot of times people tell me things that are despicable. And because they're so embarrassed, they'll leave. And to kind of distance himself from me, they'll slander me. God asks me to take the high road, to trust him. To trust that he's got my back. He will save me, and he will exalt me in time. It's true for all of you. Some of you have had people work, have bosses that lie about you. And you have nowhere to go. God sees. Some of you have friends that have slandered you to your other friends, God sees. But in my mind, God allows these things to happen to get you alone. Because when you're alone, you finally get the training wheels taken off and you start trusting in God. And that's where life is.
Do you like being alone or do you always have to have noise? The more lonely you are, the more mature you become. That's just the facts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this truth. It's hard. Oh, it's hard. Help us, God, to find joy when everybody turns their backs on us. Help us, God, to trust you. We love you in Jesus' name.